Hi, my name is John Light, and I've spent over 20 years working throughout all corners of the recruiting world. Our podcast, Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool, is a resource to help you stay afloat and get ahead of your competition. Hi, and welcome to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. I'm your host, John Light, president of Sabretooth Tech Recruiting. And with me today, I have Steve Mosh, the vice president of human resources at First Interstate Bank. And don't let the company title or mild disposition fool you. Uh, Steve has been around the block more than once in the private equity world and big corporate world. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to have the opportunity to chat with him is because he has been in different spaces. And uniquely, when Steve has to hire and bring talent on, and Steve, fill me in if I'm incorrect in this, you're often moving people, especially at a higher level, right. uh, which right now a lot of people look at and go, wait a second, why can't I just work from wherever I am? So something to explore, but, but welcome, Steve. And if you could give us a rundown of what brought you to where you are today. Well, John, hi, I'm glad to be here. My background, as you mentioned, you know, I started off in private equity out of college. I was in there for about a decade, did a lot of M&A work, you know, moved into some bigger corporate environments like Microsoft, ultimately went back into the startup world, if you will, with a couple organizations and then ending up with Anth Venture, which is another private equity group and first interstate along the way as well. So it's been a, a journey of different industries and a lot of different challenges in different economic environments, the need to move, the need to change, the need to adapt all the way through. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a fun journey to, to get to where we're at today. And I'm excited to be talking to you today, specifically as we get into the tech talent, because it's an ever-changing environment for, for finding the right tech talent. And to your point, whether it's going to work remotely which it does in many instances, depending on level, or if we're going to have to relocate them as well. I would tell you, that, you know, it's funny because when you look at tech in general, right, and say you back up to 2000s, um, in that time frame until about a year and a half, two years ago, I think the tech talent market had a lot of flux. You had new technology coming in. Right. You had companies that took off and all this. But a couple of years ago, year and a half or so now, I guess, some amazing things started happening. People started getting laid off. Right. You know, there was a ton of hiring and a lockdown period. And then companies were stepping back and looking, hey, maybe we went too far. That's true or not. Maybe they didn't go far enough. Who knows? But regardless, we ended up with a lot of people getting laid off. And they weren't all tech people. I mean, let's be fair. They're laid off maybe from tech companies, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Facebooks, the the whatever the company du jour is on your mind. And that's roiled the market a lot because right on the tail end of all those layoffs, with all this talent hitting the market, raising its head as a generative tool now that a lot of companies are looking at going, well, do I really need a 15 person development team when an AI can write 80% of the code right. and really just needs somebody to kind of oversee it or edit it as it were? So I think if you wanted to deal in a talent market specialization or sector that had a ridiculous amount of flux, a ridiculous amount of change right now, I think we're talking about the right one. Right. Um, who knows exactly what that market, what a job is going to look like that was a developer six years ago. 
what is that person going to be doing three years from now, a year from now? I don't, I don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, that's why I'm talking to smart people every chance I get to find out what that answer is before my competitors do. But I'm curious, you know, when, when you look at bringing market in general and specifically a tech talent market from your position as a hiring manager who hires selectively. And I know, you know, I've spoken before and and data science and machine learning and other aspects of that related aspects are, are important to your business. Um, but it's important for your business culture that you have that ability to see them eye to eye, face to face, to integrate, to work together and innovate. How do you balance that with, with the talent you find in the market and get people to come to that? Because it's not like you're sitting in Chicago or New York or Houston or LA. You're something a, a wee bit less urban. Right. No, it, it's interesting. You, you've got to have this flexibility within your business model. Some success that we've had down the path is is we don't go total remote. We don't go completely in office. We're truly hybrid, to be quite honest. So you, you'll have people who are primarily remote, but because of the high-performance, team-based orientation, high communication and collaboration, we really want them together because we've really found that that's actually more effective overall. Time and time again, when we take a look at these teams, they're better off. If they can get together, mm -hmm. at least on some frequency throughout the year, it might be once a quarter, we'll bring them out for a week. And that's extremely valuable. Some other folks may be a, you know, a little less than that. They're generally a little further down in maybe early career, if you will. They'll, they'll stay right. more remote. When you get higher up into the executive level, yeah, the majority of them are going to be hybrid, if not, you know, on site at the HQ, just because mm -hmm. you, you're going to have the, for example, the CEO, the CIO and other folks within the C-suite and the, the executive leadership team that are here. To be quite honest, you're at somewhat of a disadvantage if you're 2000 miles away, even though you can do yeah. maybe the majority of your job. But there are all of these other things that occur in the background more ad hoc as well that you want to be a part of and you want to be in that decision-making process and you want to be leading through that proactively as opposed to hearing about it later within it. So there's all of these different factors that, you know, you're probably looking for a, a simple answer, you know, to this, but you know, <laughs> there's complexity within it. And that's why I say you've got to be adaptable. You specifically need to be in alignment with what your strategy is, what you're trying to achieve and aligning everyone with that and actively managing it within yeah. the culture. Well, let's talk about a skills gap in the tech space for tech talent. And, and there's a massive one. And I think it's been amplified by work from home and even hybrid work. And, and that's soft skills. Right. You know, I read a study that tracked thousands of new hires and it tracked the reasons why they either left or were asked to leave rather forcefully in some cases, voluntarily or involuntary. And 82% of the time, the most ascribed reason were, were soft skills, right. not hard skills, not whether or not, you know, they can learn a particular branch of engineering or particular coding language or, or whatever it might be, but their soft skills, their ability to align and integrate and work with other people. And I'm curious what your thoughts are around the skills gap as it relates to what I would call a soft skill or even a non-traditional skill. And that's the ability to interact face-to-face. -face. Now you and I are interacting 
virtually, but at least we can see each other's facial expressions and can, you know, make judgments on some level of body language that, okay, he's being sarcastic or, okay, he's, he's really sincere about this and so on and so forth. I'm curious if you've seen that growing soft skills gap in the talent that you've been finding for your company. It's yes and no answer, to be honest with you. Yes, there is a skills mm-hmm. gap. No, it's not unique from my standpoint, but it gets a little bit exacerbated with the remoteness, if you will. The example that, that I think is fairly homogenous across tech is much of the population who are drawn and very good at what they do on the technical side uh, tend to be what I would call more reserved and they would rather talk to technical people, if you will. You're really good at being diplomatic, Steve. <laughs> Has anybody ever told you that? <laughs> um, yeah. But that kind of flies in the face of a few of like the sales and marketing side or recruiters or like you, you and myself, you know, we're more gregarious, we're more out there, more, more social, we're much more yeah. cross-functional. And, and that's where we have to focus in on it is if you're in a large organization, you know, let's say like a Google or a Microsoft, there will be a large percentage of those folks that can continually interact primarily with other technical people, and they will do fantastic. They will do fun. Mm-hmm. Now, to your point, like with the layoffs, when you have people coming out of those big companies due to a layoff, and they're looking at maybe a startup, a small, or even up to a mid-market, suddenly they have to have those communication skills a little more sharpened if you will. They have to be open, willing to work cross-functionally. So they're working with different functions. They're interacting with different functions. And we're dealing with what I call many cultures within the overall culture of the organization. And if they struggle with that, that's where things start breaking down at that point in time. And I tend to, to kind of pivot at that point because you can say, well, these individuals need to step up. Well, that, that's true to some degree, but it really gets to the leadership piece. Are the mm-hmm. leaders truly leading? Do they truly understand how to manage remotely? Do they truly understand how to mobilize their own team, get them to interact? Do they understand the strengths mm-hmm. within their team, which include these soft skills you're talking about? And can they lead through that and take their team to a higher level? And even for the individuals as well. And so, you know, I'm taking a long route to kind of try to get to it's a shared responsibility within this. And mm-hmm. so when they're failing like that, that failure isn't unique to that individual. That failure is happening within the organization overall. Yeah, that's a big chunk of it for sure. Yeah, but absolutely. I think we also have to look at it from an organizational standpoint is that it is a developing a rounding out of a skill set for any individual. Right. If that's not to say that if you're an introvert, you need to suddenly morph into an extrovert and become more outgoing and gregarious. Not saying that whatsoever, right. but you have to be able to focus in on the conversation, pick up certain social cues and know that, okay, this is the way to go or that's the way to go. Or when to, you know what? I understand you disagree with me. Let's give your way the opportunity. Let me work hard to, to help you succeed. Right. You know, because it is a team thing. And I think that's, those are components that, not everyone do instinctively. And when you think about generations coming up, I've got six kids, so I've got this gap and, and they are different people on the, on each end of that gap on either side of it in terms of their upbringing. Now, when my oldest kids got phones for the first time, they were flip phones that you could text and talk on. And that was it. 
That was it. Now you put a phone in someone's hand and they're capable of computing all the necessary calculations to take a Mars shot, you know, and you have access through 5G, through the internet and whatnot, all this data, you have access to a tremendous amount of information that 20 years ago, the average person would have to go to a library or an internet cafe and and figure things out. And I just wonder, as people are coming up and they're obviously, there's not a gap when it comes to IQ. There's not a gap when it comes to the ability to innovate or have ideas or even work hard, you know, have a good work ethic. I, I don't know that there's a some sort of a gap there, but when it comes to the human interaction and and the reason it's been on my mind, frankly, is I've had several conversations recently on not AI from a technical sense, but AI from an application standpoint. And one of the big things is understanding its limitations. It's still a computer system of sorts. It's still good in, good out or garbage in, garbage out, as, as the saying goes. But it's still going to require from us the ability to engage with other people and with empathy, with walking a mile in their shoes, with understanding that someone may value something that we don't value the way we value it or the way they value it. And AI doesn't get that, you know? And so, I, but I sit back and wonder, are we, are we leaving a generation of talent coming into the workspace and moving around and, and growing in the workspace? Are we kind of leaving them without a very important tool? I mean, again, 82% of the time, the reason companies and employees part company in general terms relates to soft skills, the interpersonal thing, the human touch. You know, I'm a, I'm a little leery of it personally because... What's uh, It's great if you know how to code. It's great if you know how to develop a machine learning model. Can you get a C-suite team or an executive team to buy off into your project? Because that's going to take you actually communicating, connecting with them, right? Not doing a sales job per se, but just be in person. Right. You know, I'm still waiting for my robot butler to come up and tell me what to wear every day. That hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Well, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of complexities within that because what's the human condition? The human condition is emotional. The human condition can be irrational. And when we look at the AI and we look at the technical world, they try to be as rational as possible. A lot of what we're doing when we're data mining, otherwise, we're looking for trends. We're looking for similarity, looking for patterns, that type of thing. And then we Mm -hmm. arrive at conclusions and actions from that. Well, when you're dealing with individual people, it doesn't work that way. No, don't, sir. don't get me wrong. There's some people, yeah, very much it'll be okay with, but there's a large population that, no, it is not going to work that way. And I always go back to the same thing. When you see that type of turnover, I think there is a very significant leadership quality gap on a broad base. Okay. You know, I, I tend to go back to the leadership and I'm not trying to pick on all the leaders out there. Don't get me wrong, because there's many excellent ones you know, along the way. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the failure internally, and I think many consultants and, and companies will say this, is they just don't have the pool that they need, which are leaders who are highly effective, can mobilize their people, motivate their, their people, have those great relationships, and get results for the organization. You know, it, it's a big mm-hmm. lift. To be honest, leadership should not be taken lightly. It's a big lift, but we've got to do much better. And of course, this has been going on for years and years, but much better at how we assess and how we develop specifically leaders and how we support them going forward. And we need to adjust the performance systems along the way, too, because, you know, in the Western culture, we're very much about the individual. 
And yet we tend to mix in the team base and the collaboration and so forth. But we'll go back to the individual. Well, there's an inherent conflict that comes with that and how you assess and so forth. So there's a lot of complexities within it. But I, I go back to where you started with it, with the AI. I'm in agreement 100%. They're not at the point, this point in time, where they can, where the AI, at least to my understanding, can contend with that ambiguity. Right. The nuance. Right. And really what it comes down to, I read a great book. I had a professor. I'll, I'll remember him till I die. Uh, Dr. Larry Wood, when I was at A&M, uh, advanced accounting. I don't recall working one accounting problem in that class. But what we did is we would have to go to the Wall Street Journal, New York Times business section or, or whatever. Yeah, newspapers were a thing back then. Don't get me to don't ask when I graduated from college. But we'd go in, we'd find an article and we'd write a synopsis of it. And maybe, you know, our thoughts or opinions or application of certain accounting principles, things of that nature. And I'm up in his office talking to him one time. And he was a, not only a practicing CPA, he's a partner at a firm, just incredibly outgoing, nice guy in general, but he handed, he told me there was a book. He said, John, if you read the first eight chapters, it's like getting a master's degree in economics, which I thought, wow, price of a book is cheap tuition. So I went and bought uh, Frederick Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. And I managed to read three, maybe four or five pages a day. And I would have to put it down because to me, it was so dense and there was so much to absorb. And it really opened my eyes to thinking about things uh, very differently. But I always remember Dr. Wood because he he passed away the, in the fall semester. I had him in a summer school. He passed away uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Um, but I'm indebted to him, and I recommend that book to a lot of people. One of the reasons I recommend it is because one of the gaps that I see from the outside looking in organizations is a misalignment between the priorities of the individual and the priorities of the team. You know, you talk about the complexities, and these are two different things to judge how a team performs versus how an individual performs. I say that's not because of the performance per se, but it's because their priorities are aligned differently. And the best teams are the ones where the individual's priorities and the team's priorities are in alignment. How they go about business, what they want to accomplish. And that can be really, really hard to achieve. And I do agree with you, though, that that gap is driven either because we're blind or from the leadership aspect of not being aware that you got to search for it, that you have to build that both internally, but also with the building blocks you bring in from the outside. And I wonder, and I was thinking about this as you were talking, you've been through, I don't, want to, I don't even want a number to know how much M&A activity you've dealt with. But from the PE side and the big corporate side, if you were talking to an up and coming data scientist or a rising star in AI or somebody who had ambitions or drive or goal in that direction, and they want to be recognized as a leader. What are a couple of the gaps that you see in the marketplace today that you would advise someone earlier in career that, hey, you need to take on this challenge or develop this skill in order to position yourself to be a leader for tomorrow? Well, having a crystal ball would be a good one, you know, to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest. Just because the market changed, the needs of leaders change. I mean, it's it's a great, great question. And, you know, some of the things that, that I'll have discussions around with is keep learning. You yeah. Know, get, get yourself into that habit of you're not there. This is a journey. You're mm -hmm. not at the destination of what you've learned because you will be outdated very quickly. One of the challenges, you know, on the, on the tech recruiting side is that and you mentioned it before, it's rapidly evolving. 
Mm-hmm. The tech demands, and we need new skills. So they've got to be able to adapt. If they're looking into the leadership side, I would tell them to do a little introspection. Is that what they want to do? Would they rather be on the tech side or do they want to lead people at a higher level? And they're going to move away from some of that hands-on as mm-hmm. they're moving forward. Do they have that? Do they know what it takes to develop themselves? Do they have an idea You know, early on as, as they look around as to what would make the team better? Is that effective? To your point, though, it's also learn the business. Almost anyone in any organization, I would tell them, and and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of people, they need a job, they need an an income, and that's where they're at in life. Right, right. It's just just reality within it. But other folks, I I would say, learn the business, no matter what function you're in, understand the levers of that business, understand what the, the why, the what, and the how of the business is within that. If you do that, you're a long ways further than other folks today mm-hmm. in terms of understanding how you fit in an organization, where you need to be. If you're in a support function like IT, for example, what you need to provide is services to your customers internally and maybe even externally within yeah. that. This sounds like you know highly complex to tell somebody that's coming in at an entry level side, but I think <laughs> I think it's it's great advice for them to to just have heard that. And hopefully they can internalize that as they're going forward and find some mentors along the way. Find somebody that's interested in you, who you really respect, and create that relationship. If you want to be really successful in multiple fields, network. Networking is huge. You know, a lot of times I'll I'll hear, you know, let's go to the top colleges, go to the Harvards, the Yales, and so forth for that. Well, I've got relatives and other folks that I know who have gone through that. And they will tell me straight out that one of the top perks, if you will, of going into those institutions is the networking, the people you meet, the contacts that you will have for life within that. And that's a significant part of their success, of their advancement going forward. And I would tell people that because this goes back to the old adage, right? You know, surround yourself. Who you surround yourself is who you will be. Mm-hmm. You know, so the people that you're around, are they helping you move forward? Are they helping getting to you, getting you to where you want to be in your career and in your life? Yeah. And, and, and I think that's just, just sage advice for folks. So. Yeah. And I would, I would layer in there with the continuous learning, being curious. Yes. Well, two things. Number one, staying curious and being, being curious. Like you said, understand how the business works that you're in, even if you're there and it's a stair step job. It's your stepping stone to whatever's next. Still focus in on how does this work? How does this company make money? And there are some great examples out there. And whether you agree or disagree with some of them and their businesses, I mean, one of the most current ones out there is Anheuser-Busch and their their marketing issues with Bud Light and losing their market position. I've dropped from one to 14 in the US. And whether or not their decisions were right or wrong or irrelevant, what is relevant is that somewhere along the way, they push the button for a lot of people who paid them a lot of money over their lifetimes, and they're not spending those dollars anymore. And you have to understand, working for a company, uh, there's a constituency, but there's your customers. And you better understand your priorities in there, because if you don't take care of your customers, you can't take care of your constituency. And your constituency may be, like you mentioned earlier, it may be, person needs a job because they've got to take care of family 
It may be a person gets in there because there's a cause or a purpose they get behind. And it's less about the money and it's less about the bennies and the opportunity, but more about this is a passion project. And either direction or any other direction is fine in my book, but that doesn't excuse us to drop the ball and understand what really moves business. And if cash is king, if cash is lifeblood of business and you hack off your customer base, good luck because the cash will dry up. You know, and I don't know that there's a crystal ball that'll show us what's going to happen here in the next few years specifically, but there's enough of an intuition uh, for us as individuals and, and groupthink intuition, I, 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 my sense is to understand that three years from now, we may be looking at a very different business culture in this country and around the world than anyone expected where velocity is as much a determining factor as quality or quantity or pricing, you know, because one thing AI is delivering and one thing tech has been delivering faster and faster and faster over time is the speed at which we get stuff. You know, why take one grocery trip a week or a month or whatever it is to Sam's or Costco or your grocery store when you can go and drop a list in Amazon and have it delivered to your door or into the Walmart shopping thing or whatever it is. I don't particularly like those things. I enjoy going to the grocery store and finding fancy foods and cheeses I never would have thought of before. I got a cheese with this truffle stuff in it the other day when we had some guests over. Oh, man. I could have just, I could have drank. If it was liquid, if it was like queso, I could have drank it. It was so good. You know, I enjoy that exploration and doing that. Not everyone does because things are changing. And I think there's just going to be such a time compression in the decision process that it's, you know, whatever we're doing, it's going to change radically. But I think deep knowledge workers and positions that rely on intuition, empathy, the human touch, I think you're pretty safe. Right. Um, Designing things that are truly creative, truly innovative, because AI can only produce a synthesis of what it's been taught, in effect. It can only synthesize. If you give it a Picasso and you give it a Da Vinci and whatever it might be, and you they have to, it has to blend these things together. It can't really do something completely innovative. So I think a lot of things are safe, but I think a lot of things are going to be displaced. A lot of people will be, but the question is, where do they go? And I think if we don't, if we haven't spent time closing the skills gap on the soft skills, that where do we go and getting there gets a lot harder. Well, it's interesting as you talk, one of the things that, you know, I've had discussions with various folks on is what happened? along the way. What I mean by this is, you know, prior to the pandemic, we were going through a lot of rapid change in technologies. Companies and teams were struggling with that to keep up with it, to keep up with the market, to keep up with the needs, keep up with the technology and the skill sets, all of these things. Right. And then the pandemic hit. And you think about what came to the forefront, but it really started prior to that was crisis management. And a lot of the Mm, skill sets that come through crisis management. And I think with the velocity that you've mentioned, I think that still applies. Now we may call it something different, but I think many of the same things that you go through in crisis management, you lose market share, you lose those large customers that you needed to survive and you've got to do your cutbacks. These are all enveloped within crisis management. Yeah, And, And we've seen leaders who have stepped forward, like within the US, many of them 
had done turnarounds. They've been through crisis management. That's one of their skill sets that's really strong. And, and I think that's something, you know, for leaders to think about, too, even new ones coming in is, to your point, you're going to have to move fast. There's a velocity, that you know, speed that goes with that. Crisis management is a piece that you're going to want to be very aware yeah. of. You've got to be able to shift. You've got to be able to pivot in the market and to adapt when new technologies come out. You need to be proactive. You need to have your heads up and you need to be aware of business of what's happening geopolitically as well. It's it's more than being the mom and pop shop if, yeah. if you're going to be a going concern, especially in the technology side. Yeah. Well, and to your point earlier, you need to understand your business and right. where it fits in the larger business ecosystem. Because if you don't understand that, how do you have a reference point to respond to something that's at the level of a crisis? Right. You know, or it's maybe not defined in that, oh, here's this existential threat because of something going on geopolitically, for example. But it may just be a crisis in the sense that things are happening so fast. If I make a bad decision, do I have ego in the way or investment in the way that prevents me from correcting that course? Before it gets too bad, you, you know, and that's one of the I think that's one of the, the killers right there is, well, yeah, I made this decision. It's the right decision. Well, time will tell. We don't always know that at the time of decision. And that's one of the that's one of the scary things about leadership or about hiring people. You know, no one can guarantee I've tracked my personal fall off rate on candidates I've placed over the over a decade. And it's it's a little south of four percent. Industry average in the headhunting business recruiting game is something up in the neighborhood of 15. And even if you go and hire and forget using a headhunter, forget using external help, but you go out and hire, I wonder, I shudder sometimes, not just at the fall off, right? Who leaves in the first 90 days or six months or whatever number you want to put on it and track, but who gets into those roles and they do the minimum requirements. So you're not quite where you want to let them go and they don't quite want to leave, but you're at this impasse. It's like you're married, but you're sleeping in different rooms right. because you can only tolerate so much of each other. That's, that's a half-life. I wouldn't want to live that as an employee or as an employer, if I can avoid it. Right. So I think the velocity of those decisions, it could change things that you look at in assessing talent, for example, you know, coming out of the 90s into the 2000s and onward, you look at someone's progression and tenure on their resume. Well, I see that you've, you've been through 10 jobs in eight years. That may or may not be a negative until you understand what's behind that, right? Or, hey, I see you've been with one company for 10 years and you've been promoted twice. You know, well, why weren't you promoted four or five times? Is there something wrong with you? Is that why you stayed there 10 years? Because no one else was interested in you as a kid? I mean, you can see where it goes really quickly. How we interpret that data, I guess the preset bias we have in data interpretation is really going to be amplified by the velocity of information of data forcing us to make decisions. I don't know, that's kind of a, a wonky way to put it. I'm just doing stream of consciousness here. but No, no the thing that, as you were talking, what I was thinking about is, I was thinking about recruiters and how they vet candidates. I think about and, those and, all the time. And to your, to your point, you know, they're, they're looking for what I call the ahas mm -hmm. more so than seeking to understand within it. You know, I, I've seen folks like when I lived out in Seattle 
who had gone through, to your point, you know, 12 or 15 jobs. And certain executives would look at that and react just as you had mentioned. They're looking at this going, what's wrong with this person? They can't seem to stick in the job. Do they not have any grit, this and that? But if you, you took a look behind the curtain, you had the conversation with them. Instead of looking for the ahas all the time and what would screen them out, find out what, what was going on with these. And in many cases, through these, these were startups that maybe didn't get funding. They were doing mm-hmm. the job and so forth. Or they went in on a project basis within that, but they're not representing it well enough on their resume so that you get that other than through the conversation. There's a lot they, of that that goes on, too. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, you know, and this gets back to a thing that, that I, I, you know, just to digress here for for a second on the resume, you and I have talked about, you know, a lot of times you get the resumes in, especially for the technical side, and they'll list all the technology languages. Mm-hmm. They don't give you any initiatives or how good they are. Or maybe, maybe they only <laughs> read a book on it, but they got this whole list on that. I always encourage folks in your resumes, like one of three things should be in those bullet points, action and result is huge. Put that right. in. If you don't have that, action and project your result. Like for these folks, they weren't there, they lost the funding, but they were doing some really neat stuff. You know, right. they were getting some things done. Put that in there. Even though, you know, you didn't hit it, what was your projected result? What was the action? Or another one, which is just a little different twist, is obstacle and solution. Put that mm, in yeah. there. Because a lot, yeah. you know, we, we get very hung up on quantify it, quantify it. Well, sometimes it's about an outcome. Not about Sometimes it's number. really hard to quantify, to your point. Right. I, I mean, exactly. especially early in career. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so they, they'll kind of fall down on that side and say, you can get into different variations of what you want to see. And I think you would agree with this. You're going to talk to a lot of candidates and you're going to say, well, boy, this is a nice candidate. Mm-hmm. This would be a, a nice person to bring on board. And then you go to the next one and you look at, and they've got all the things we just talked about in their bullet points. Like, and you relate that and you're thinking about your own challenges and what's going on. And you can envision that this is a need candidate. Well, I need this person to step on board because what they did here, if this is right, mm-hmm. man, I need that. That's a need candidate. Now, if you want to be a nice or a need, be a need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, with it. Absolutely. You know, which is essentially have the value of your actions lead for you within it. I mean, yeah, that's going to get recognized. That's a real good way to put it. Have the value of your actions introduce you. Have the value of your actions lead for you or lead you where you're going to go. Because that I always tell people you've got to demonstrate your value impact. And sometimes it's not just the value impact on a company or a project. It's the value impact on you. Right. How have you grown? What is the difference that has made? And to your point, some things are like that would be difficult to quantify. Now, we try to quantify it. Oh, I just def- successfully defended my thesis for my PhD or, or whatever. And I suppose that's a quantification, but that doesn't really show the value impact. And so I'm always harping on this idea of value impact. You know, what what did you do? And a value impact is not quantified just in dollars and cents. It could be in time saved. It could be in efficiency. It could be... And, and anything that you can put a number to. But right. I think that a lot of people, like a lot of companies, miss leading with their value and instead just simply default to, I can do X, Y, and Z, and I've handled these responsibilities. And as I say sometimes, not 
I still haven't figured out the perfect diplomatic way to say, so what? What's your point? Because if I want to go look, for example, uh, for a controller, I know what a controller does. Okay, great. Fine and dandy. You're, you're the financial controller. You know, you do the reporting. You're responsible for AP, AR, payroll, all that jazz. I know what you do. But there's a big difference between being a controller at, I don't know, waste management and being the controller for mom and pop country store and some faraway rural area. Huge difference. Even though the responsibilities are quote unquote the same, the context is wildly different. And if you don't get in and paint that picture, or if you don't have an enlightened interviewer such as yourself or me, who understands that brand and context and all this can mean things, I think you get lost in the shuffle. And when you're dealing with a lot of startups on your resume or early stage companies, nobody might know who they are. You know, I remember going back and I would see something back in the early 2000s, late 90s and go, what's that company? Where did they come from? They just went public? You know, I've never heard of them. What do they do? And then I find out, oh yeah, I'm using their service every day. I just don't see it. You know, so there's some, I think, I think to your, I think your point's spot on. I just, if you're sitting in a leadership role and you're looking at talent and we've come through this huge flux, this huge evolution where hybrid work is much more of a thing. Even total work from home is much more of a thing. Fractional employment over the past three years has been through the roof. You know, whether you want to talk about going to Upwork or Fiverr or any of these other sites and you're getting people to do fractional work. When you consider those things from an executive standpoint, and you're looking at talent, how do you sort through that? Because we talk about using AI to sort through resumes and qualify them before it even gets to a human being. But how, I don't know that AI can actually do that without missing a substantial chunk of very talented, functional, and well-fit uh, potential candidates, because they're just looking at a handful of buzzwords and data points. Did they go to the right school? Have they worked at a competitor? Blah, blah, blah. So I'm curious from an executive position, how do you address that? Well, I don't count on it yet because I don't think the technology is there yet, but that's my experience uh, right. at this point in time. I've gone back through where you're doing the screening through the technology and you're just not satisfied with the pool that you look at. And I've sat down with executives that have come to the same conclusion. We'll go back and we've actually gone through the exercise going back and pulling those resumes and going through them ourselves and finding mm -hmm. a pool that was not the pool that the technology screened to. Right. Uh, because you're going to find all sorts of different things. It'd be great if everybody knew how to write a resume for a specific job for a specific company. It just doesn't work that way. You've got some people who target their resumes and some people who send out homogenous resumes all the way through. If I were going to give any advice to those in the technology side, please don't represent yourself as a rock star or a unicorn within it. Um, <laughs> and what I would say is a concern. I'm not trying to criticize them. I'm just saying, you know, I get what you're trying to say and your experience may support that you're kind of a jack of all trades, maybe a master of none. The last part of that will be a concern because we might be looking for a master. We might be looking for a niche skill set as well. I would say don't dilute your value by trying to fit everything within it. Yep. Pick your lane. Where are you strong at? Where can you make an impact? Where do you provide the value? Go down that path. And yes, I mean, I would be the first to admit, 
you're not going to be hired by some companies by doing that because you're going down yeah. a specific path. But that can be okay because maybe that's not a fit for you. Well, you can't through. be everything to everybody. Right. You know, the companies that do need you, though, now you're spot on in how you're presenting yourself and the strengths that you have. You've got the mm -hmm. best opportunity to win that job with the competitive competition because the competition out there is, as you know, it's stiff. It's there's brutal. a lot of people. And with the layoffs that you talked about, there's a lot of skill sets. But that said, I always caution people to say companies do some smart things. When they do the layoffs and they determine who they're going to lay off, they do their best to try to keep the best of the best out there. Mm -hmm. Now, that does not mean that there's not great talent out there and potential in the market. Right. It is. But to me, that's a realistic view. When you take a look at those exiting the company, don't automatically assume just by the brand of the company or whatever, that these are the high talent, the high potentials, those key contributors that are coming come out. They may well be, but don't just assume that. No, well, you got to gotta look at, you got to look at the context because right. a high level individual contributor or leader or whatever you want to call it, say, for example, in the actuarial business at a very large company may get laid off from a very much smaller company they went to or a medium sized company because their skills aren't as valued there or the context has shifted and I've got computers at Crunchy's number. I need a data analyst to do that. I don't need an accountant, an actuarial accountant to do it. It used to be you had actuarial accountants do all that stuff. I'm sure it's transitioned away from it, but I think you got to look at the context a lot because I've seen people go from large companies to pants on fire startups and utterly fail. I've seen very few succeed doing it all at once. The ones I have seen succeed, typically do it from the context of they got laid off somewhere and they were niched up in their skills. And so they went, became an entrepreneur, launched their own thing and made it work. I've seen that happen numerous times, but typically taking an employee from a large company and making an employee for a small company that's growing like crazy, that's a hard road and vice versa. Once you've gotten a taste of being an entrepreneur, your hair has been on fire. It's a problem. Well, great. Let me solve it. Does it matter if it's HR or accounting or sales or operations? Heck no, it's a problem. I want to go solve it. I want to contribute. I want to attack this thing. You go to a big company where all that's set and it's very bureaucratic. It's, you know, it's got its controls and compliance and processes and people and technology in place. And you sit there and I've done this myself. And you're just bored because there's no challenge. The challenge is, did you check your boxes for your monthly tasks? Well, yeah, that, that's one of the challenges that goes into retention of some of the, the tech talent, because I've seen this a lot when they come in. It's not necessarily about the money, as you said before, though they're going to command some of the higher salaries. But there's this real desire for opportunity and challenge at a rapid pace. And the rapid pace is the piece that people don't add to that phrase. Well, they want opportunity and challenge. Yeah, but they also want it rapidly. Mm -hmm. And that may not fit with the culture of the organization or the challenges that are ahead. You may have some very significant challenges. I mean, some of these companies will tell you they worked on projects for maybe two and three years before it went to market within it. Yeah. If you're coming in as a candidate and you want to make big impact and you're looking for that challenge, you'll get that. The rapid pace, maybe. 
within it. And yeah. now, now you're, you're not happy with it because you wanted to move forward and you were thinking maybe you're going to get promoted. Maybe you're just going to get a lot of different experiences within it. And don't get me wrong, some will be that, but don't assume it. So to me, there's two yeah. sides that has to happen there. The candidate needs to clearly articulate that if possible to what they're truly looking right. for. Otherwise, they're being the unicorn again. They're just, I just need this job. I want this job. I want to get into this job. This is what it is. But they have these other expectations in yeah. the back of their mind, which are very real. It doesn't do themselves any justice, and it doesn't do the employer. The employer should also be vetting that, which is, to your point, getting the context. What do they desire to do? What are their aspirations? within? I do this in developmental conversations mm -hmm. with leadership and other employees as well, where I would sit down and we'll talk about the organization, the strategy, what we're trying to achieve, their specific area, what needs to be achieved within what time frame. But I will shift that conversation to add, where are they at? How are things going? With kind of a temperature check, if you will. I'll also check in on them with their aspirations. Where do you mm -hmm. want to be? I, I've literally had those on my team look at me and they'll kind of facetiously say, oh, well, I want your job. And, you know, it's like, it's come get it, thing. please. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, to me, I mean, the, the right response is fantastic. Let's have the conversation right now. If this is what you want to do, let's get you the experience. I think what happens a lot of times in a leader, they either get threatened to some degree because they're worried about this is a great employee and I really need them in this role. Mm -hmm. And uh oh, it's a big uh oh for them when what they really should be doing is worrying more about how do I engage this person? How do I develop them and move them forward? And guess what? If they get your job because you went on to something better, fantastic. And you did a great job and you're one of the better yeah. leaders for that. Let's say you're not moving. You're going to continue on. You're going to continue with the team. They've gotten to a level. They really want to go to the next step. Don't burn the bridge. Help them with that. Even yeah. if it's to go to another company, and even if that's a painful situation, Keep that relationship. Have a good enough relationship where they don't just suddenly come into your office and say, hey, I'm giving you two weeks. Because I, yeah. I would I would argue that as a leader, that's a challenge. And, and you could argue that it's a failure by that leader, that they didn't have the relationship, they didn't have the trust of that direct report to get into that. I bet, we could, I bet we could do an entire podcast on that topic, on succession, and a leader a good leader prepping their team and identifying successors and developing them and keeping them engaged long enough to where they do step into that chair when that leader moves on. You know, you can't be a leader, sit there and stay in that chair for an eternity and expect that you're grooming people to step into it, you know, and you can't be the, like the football coach. Yeah, we've got four quarterbacks on a roster and I don't know who the starter is. And it's, you know, the third week in August. Well, you probably shouldn't be a head coach then if you haven't figured it out. That's one of the big challenges out there, but it's I view that as more of a generic challenge versus a tech talent challenge. You no, know, it's it's wrapped up in it. But I think we could probably talk about it for quite a while, so long as we don't reference any uh, cable TV shows uh, along <laughs> exactly. the way. Steve, let me ask you this, because I know we started off a little bit about where you came from and all this, but looking at where you're sitting today, it doesn't necessarily have to, of course, wouldn't ask you to say anything that's uh, to the to the negative on this, but I'm curious, what's next for Steve Mosh? I mean, you've been at First Interstate for a while. Uh, you're accomplished. You've done a whole lot of different things. I don't ever, I've never gotten the sense that you are thinking about slapping your Stetson on and riding into the sunset. So what in terms of projects or maybe even passion projects 
uh, or on your radar that you are starting to engage in or want to engage in here in the in the near future? Well, it's interesting. If you look through my career, I would describe, you know, what's my lane? I've been a builder throughout most of my career. You know, starting out in private equity, you know, you're starting with startups. Sometimes they're at the seed level. Sometimes they're a little, little further stage, maybe even late stage. But you've got to build them. You've got to build everything mm-hmm. out from the ground up. You know, you know, I find that exciting, if you will. Getting involved with Nth Venture just fits right in that for me. These mm-hmm. are companies that are getting started. They're getting bootstrapped. I kind of look at it. We call it here paying it forward. You know, paying it forward is that knowledge transfer. It's, it's giving an organization or individuals the benefit of your experience, but not in a way that you're instructing them to do this, but in a way that you're, you're consulting. You're trying to help them move forward, help them do the heavy lifts, be a mentor to some degree, be a coach to some degree. Just be somebody who's interested and wants to be there and has the energy for that. So what, what's next for me? It's those types of things. I enjoy the advisory board level. I enjoy getting hands-on with an organization. You know, if an opportunity comes up, which is building, it's going to attract my attention, if yeah. you will. And there's nothing wrong. I always tell everybody this. There's nothing wrong with having the conversation. No. You know, if somebody calls no. you up, I mean, have the conversation. See what's out there. You know, that. That tells you a number of different things, even if you're not going to move and you're going to stay where you're at. It understands where you fit potentially in the market. Are your skill sets up to what's being asked for today? Another one, which a lot of people will hone in on is what's the value of what you do mm-hmm. out there? You know, That's you, a great you data be, point to hear. Yeah, yeah, you might be surprised. You might be doing fantastically well where, where you're at, or you might come away saying, well, I'm competitive. Or worst case scenario, you come away going, wow, I am really behind the market at this point Mm -hmm. in time. And that's an issue, which once again, I will go back and say, that's a broader issue. Because if you find out that that actually is correct, then your internal systems have a problem in your organization. (laughs) Maybe it's time to revisit that a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But but to get back to your question, I, I would say I would describe my career as one as being a builder been through different industries, which I've really enjoyed having that diversity across the board for that. If if I was going to go anywhere next, it would be along those lines. It would be to go and build. It's all great and good to be in the big organizations, and there's a lot of great, great things about them. But I do enjoy the pace. I, I enjoy the challenges. I enjoy building. And of course, I'm on the people side, and I've really enjoyed watching people succeed and having mm-hmm. a hand in their development to help them along, you know, not in a way that I should ever get, you know, get credit other than just being a support person in that role, right. but in a way that you can feel really good that you've done something that's providing a good action to somebody. They've moved You've forward. added value to them somehow. Absolutely. At the end of the day, that's, that's kind of, you know, I, I say in the background, it, that's the warm and fuzzy. When, when you can step back later and you can have a conversation that somebody that they came across to you and maybe they weren't viewed as a high performer and X number of years later, you're talking to them and they're in the C-suite of a company. You know, I've got some examples from my background that are that way. And I just take great self-satisfaction and I'm so happy for them as well that we had faith in them. We gave them the shot. They walked in, they took complete accountability and ownership. And that success is 100% theirs. 
It really yeah. is. And but it, but it's so fun to talk with them. It's always great, and it feels good when they say thank you, you know, for what you did to help me along. But at the same time, I look at them and say, "That's a hundred percent your win. Congratulations to you. You did fantastic." That's the flip side of empathy, the positive side of it. It's not just feeling the hurt when someone's down, but feeling the joy when you see them do something great or something well. Right. Um, so, Steve, we're about the end of our time, but, man, I just want to say thank you. I think you've offered some terrific insights. And I hope our audience can take some things away from this and use, because I know we've probably spent more time in, in, in this conversation than the other episodes we've recorded recently talking about what a candidate can do. And I don't know if a lot of people recognize that whether you're a hiring team or you're the candidate looking for the position, for the opportunity, it's really the same coin, just two different sides of it. So often the a question the hiring team would ask is the same question, but from a different perspective that a candidate should ask. You know, because every interview you do as an interviewer, you are being interviewed. So it's it's an interesting push-pull, I think. But we spend a lot of time on things, I think, that are very specific to candidates. And I think it'll be very, very useful. But at the same time, there's been some cold nuggets in there uh, for executive teams that need to pay attention. You know, because I don't care how great your product is, your strategy. I don't care how what awesome tactics you use, your distribution network. If you don't have the right people in the right place at the right time doing the right things, executing that strategy, you got a big old pile of nothing. Regardless of what AI does or doesn't do, regardless of where tech goes or doesn't go, it's still people driving a bus. And we got to make sure we get the right people driving it at the right time and doing the right things enough times. And eventually, we'll all be able to put on our Stetsons and ride into the sunset and do stuff that you know matters to us for something other than a paycheck. That's part of what excites me is at some point, you know, having that impact it doesn't have to be an impact that's global or national or even statewide or citywide, but having an impact in the circle of people you interact with, whether it's frequently or infrequently, you know, where they walk away, like you said, and go, man, like I did with Dr. Wood earlier, there's no way I could ever, I said, thank you to him. And I would sit down and chat with him from time to time, have a cup of coffee or whatever in the few months between the summer session and that fall where he passed away. But someone like that, the impact he had and molding that young mind, I'll carry that with me to my grave. And I hope to be able to have that impact elsewhere. I think you're cut from the same cloth in that with that disposition. And, and I admire it. I wish there was more of that, conscientiously more of that, you know, where people intent, intentionally set out to do good uh, on the behalf of others in a way that they interpret, perceive as good and valuable to them. Right. So, Thank you very much for that, Steve. And you and I are going to be talking again soon, I'm sure. Just the mere fact that I'm in the summertime in Texas, though, uh, you're welcome to invite me anywhere at a higher latitude with cooler weather. And I'll probably drive or hop on a bus or ride a train or fly or whatever to get out of the heat. Absolutely. The only thing I can tell you is I'm in Montana right now, and yesterday was 103 degrees, though. So I'm not sure you're going to have much improvement at the moment coming north. So. Okay, I guess there's no escaping from it, so I better hunker down with an ice cube and hope for rain. All right, Steve, thanks so much. Man, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thanks again. Hey, thank, thank you, John. I appreciate it. It's been fun. You've been listening to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. This podcast is sponsored by Sabretooth. Sabretooth improves the quality of hire and speeds up the time to fill specialized machine learning 
data engineering, data science, and developer roles. Stretching tech recruiting budgets further by bringing the precision of retained search and the speed of contingent search to the market in one complete solution. Find out more at sbr2th.com and follow me, John Light, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.